Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season five, episode 14. I hope that you have joined us on the Digital Church Facebook group, but if you haven't, I want you to stop right now, or really, you don't have to stop. Just while you're listening, go over to Facebook, search for Digital Church, or follow the link below in the show notes, and join us in the group. We're resourcing you. We want you to be the best communicators in the world, so we want to keep you up to date in the latest content on platforms and digital and what's happening and how we can use those to disciple and reach people, but more than that, we want to connect you to a community of leaders. There's 600 and 80 or something of us now. And so we would love for you to join. And if you haven't done that, check it out. Well, also, uh, we would love for you to see those weekly tutorials. If you're here on this podcast because you're trying to grow in your own work, in communicating Jesus, in leadership, in church, in ministry, and entrepreneurship, and all that stuff where you need uh, to be a better communicator, check out the tutorials. We have tons of free resources for you there. Again, the link's below, but it's wordmadedigital.com. Okay, today's episode episode, Doug Paul. Doug Paul is, coolest title ever, an innovation strategist. He helps lead Catapult, which is an innovation and activation shop that works with churches and ministries and entrepreneurs. But we're talking with him about kingdom innovation and how to live in this brave new world as a pioneer. Of course, there was a time where Christians did pioneer the future. They were in business and math and science and justice reform. And along the way, some of that redemption and some of that adaption became um, old news and kind of got frozen in time. But that's not what we need to do today. So he's talking to us about innovation and how to be a kingdom leader who's called to do innovation. So thanks so much, of course, to the sponsors who make this conversation with Doug Paul possible. Wycliffe College, as I have been saying, they've got free swag for you. If you go to wycliffecollege.ca slash digital, they would love to give you some free swag. They're going to send it to you in the mail if you let them know you drop by the website. But beyond that, if you're looking to study in a seminary, if you're looking to grow as a disciple, if you want to engage as a leader with some of these huge questions that are coming up in the world today and how to innovate in your own work, then I would love for you to consider Wycliffe College. It's one of the reasons that I went there myself and did a master's of theological studies. Maybe you want to do a course, a certificate, a master's, a doctoral level study, whatever it is you want to do, they want to equip you to share your faith Uh, Wycliffe can really help you in your relationship with Jesus Christ as a thinking person. So go to wycliffecollege.ca slash wordmadedigital. Also, of course, want to shout out to Compassion. Uh, If you uh, don't know about Compassion, of course, one of their main things is around sponsoring children. Like Dr. Jose Pina, he's this medical doctor who's on the front lines. He's leading medical mission in a small town in Dominican Republic. But long before med school, he was a little boy himself in the most dangerous crime-riddled neighborhood in the Dominican Republic. So the difference that happened in his life, who Jose, who's now Dr. Jose, is because uh, he had a compassion sponsor. His life was changed by compassion sponsorship. So as a compassion sponsor myself and as a, as a person who's joining in that, you're not just seeing a child in need, but you're seeing a future doctor, a future lawyer, a future teacher, an artist, a tradesperson, a healthcare worker. You're When you sponsor a child, you're actually joining a movement of Canadians and people around the world who are 
believing that children living in poverty, they don't, they don't only matter, but they actually have a beautiful future. They actually have a future and you can be part of it if you become a child sponsor. So it matters now more than ever. They need, they need your support to survive and thrive beyond the pandemic. So go to compassion.ca today to sponsor a child. Okay, we're heading into the conversation with Doug Paul. He's practical, he's hope-filled, he's accessible, ready or not to reveal that whenever God's people have leaned into innovation, the world has shifted on its axis. So here's the conversation with Doug Paul. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Doug, Paul, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really glad to have you on this podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be on. Um, particularly, like looking through all the different guests that you have. Sometimes I'm, I'm like, well, how did I get onto this podcast? But <laughs> really, really excited to be on. Hey, no, I. Well, you're on this podcast because uh, I got your book, and I'm intrigued by it. And I know Daniel Yang. Actually, he used to be here in Toronto, where I am. And Alan Hirsch, love Alan. And Danielle yep. Strickland is a woman that I work with, and you through Alan Hirsch, the Hirsches are connected, and she's you know yeah. given a uh, not a forward um, a re- what do you call it a recommendation on the book Rec- endorsement yeah. endorsement there's yeah. the word um, so our paths were meant to collide because uh, we I think I didn't know that you knew Daniel he is one of my favorite people. Well, tell me, tell me, let's start there. Why don't we just, let's, this doesn't have to be a linear conversation. How do you know Daniel Yang? Tell us about your connection there. He's a brilliant guy. He is. I mean, so I don't, I, I've known of him from afar for a while. And then we were both at speaking at the same conference last year. And, um, I was, he was given it, he was giving his, his keynote and I was, uh, just, you know, so, sometimes you're like, uh, I'm not going to be fully engaged. I'm like, maybe there's work on my laptop that I'm going to do during the thing. Um, and he was so good. Like, not just that, like his presentation style was so good. It was, but his content, which was thinking about where culture was going to be in, in 2050. So like 30 years from now, where's culture going to be? Yeah. And the implications for the church. I literally was taking pictures on my phone that I still have of the slides on uh, on, on the, uh, the the giant screen that they had, um, because I was like, "This is so good." And so we got to talk a little bit there. And then there are a couple of organizations that we were both working with that allowed us to do some collaborative work together. And then there were some coaching groups that we launched during COVID together. Okay. And okay, I tell you, Daniel is—he's one of the most unique people I've ever been around because he is. He is one of the smartest, like just whip smart, insightful, and at the exact same time, gentle and humble. I've, mm-hmm. I've just not, it's such a rare combination. He is, it feels like the Lord has just given him a real grace 
in that area. And there's a reason that like he's able to create such amazing collaborative spaces. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. That's true. Like in well, a snapshot, it's kind of Daniel to me. Well, and I think that starts to introduce us to you as well, which is kind of interesting through you talking about someone else and why you're connected to them helps us to understand who you are. So, so would you call yourself a futurist? Like you're, you're listening to Daniel and like vibing off of him talking about the church in 30 years time. Um, I mean, there are people who, who are by profession futurists. Um, is that, is that a direction you're in as well? Uh, Tell us a little bit about this part of you. I would say that's a, I would say I'm an amateur futurist. Uh, th- there are people who, I mean, there's a, this is a level of expertise you can have. I don't have that. Um, my wife is a cultural anthropologist by oh. trade. And so some of this is like, this is just our everyday dinner conversation, which our kids just love to be part of. <laughs> um, All the nerd not, stuff. Not, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so some of our, like just the things that we talk about, the things that we enjoy are sometimes future facing and future oriented. Um, and so when we, when in 2019, we, we got into like just this organic conversation around like what might the church look like in 10 years? And so we, we actually started just she and I together and we brought in a couple of other anthropologists just to, we, we wanted like, Hey, let's, let's make 10 predictions of what church could be like in 10 years or trend lines that we're going to see that are going to happen. And it was more just for fun. Um, and so we, I mean, we put out an ebook that was, you know, it was one of those like uh, free ebooks that you could download that was just meant to be fun. But it actually, at least for last year, got me into, it just, the, the idea of forecasting, there's this great little book called Super Forecasting that is really mm-hmm. dense that I, that I got into and just nerded out to for a while. But I don't know that that's really what I'm going to end up spending most of my time doing. Um, yeah, I think it's important there. for leaders to think about the future, but it's probably not what I'm going to do professionally forever. Right. And, um, you know, when you think of the church, you know, this whole th- conversation we're entering into today is about innovation. The world has changed. I want to get into the story of your what happened to you at the beginning of COVID um, or the COVID yeah. shutdown, I should say. And, and I want to get into all of that. But um, do you think that the church is future looking? Uh, would like, would you say that we're, and maybe that's, maybe that's hard to know, but like, are we typically like we're backwards looking? Are we forward looking? Are we looking at today? Uh, what would you say about the church in general? I think it depends on where you're at. Um, I think sometimes we talk about North America as if it's a monolith, uh, like the Western church, the North American church, the American church. There's no, like in the same way that there isn't like, um, there is, there is no monolith church in this giant continent. Um, what you're experiencing in Toronto is really different from what I'm experiencing in Richmond, Virginia, which is really different than what's happening in San Francisco, which is really different from Florida. And I think it really depends on where you're at. I think if... And the church may be on one a, corner compared to the church across the street. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I think it's more about is... Are, are we comfortable with the, like the models or the vehicles that we have for church? And are we willing to just sit in that status quo? Or are we thinking regularly about like the accessibility of the gospel? Does mm. everyone have access to the gospel with the way that we are being the church, the way that we are being sent? And if the answer is no, in whatever place or space you're in, 
that's where the faithfulness question, I think, starts to get introduced. Are we being faithful to innovate, not for the sake of innovation, but for the sake of the gospel? Right. That's interesting, the question of access as a measuring stick, because, I mean, on some level, like, you know, I think of things like Wycliffe Bible Translators, uh, you know, and other organizations, missions organizations, their goal is to bring the gospel uh, to the whole world. And they have, you know, some of them have these beautiful and ambitious targets of by this date, we want to make sure every people group has a Bible in their own language and all these kinds of things. It's, but what do you mean by access? Because in America, in Canada, uh, in the West, I mean, everybody, I, I suppose, has access on their phone uh, or at their local library, I suppose, if you didn't have fewer the you know, 0.1% that don't have a phone. But so what do you mean by that, by access to the gospel? I think I would say like, how how easy is it for someone who is not a Christian to avoid the gospel? Ah. Um, I think it's it's access versus avoidability. <laughs> so think about it this way, like, because this is just, it's, if you grew up in the church, this is just not how you think about it. If you know, Alan Hirsch and Dave Ferguson, they talked about, I think in their book in 2014, about how 60% of our current models for doing church won't work for 60% of people. Excuse me, I, I, I butchered that quote. Um, it is that if we think about everyone, uh, with the models that we are currently using, they would only reach up to 40% of our people, of, of people in the United States. Hmm. Meaning like they're never ever going to use a model that we have, which means we keep doing the same kinds of stuff and not reaching a growing population, 60, 70. It's growing every year for people who don't have the gospel. And so are we saying, look, uh, we're going to keep doing our, uh, our Sunday centric thing. And if you don't want to come to our doors or if you don't want to check out what's happening online, you know, yeah. it sucks for you, doesn't it? That's all we got. And that, I mean, that's what we kind of are saying. So hmm. that's an accessibility problem. Whereas huh. if we are going to be innovative in how we, we're going to send people or send programs or send um, new vehicles to give people access to the gospel where they can't avoid it. And I mean that in a positive way. I don't mean that in an obtrusive way. I think that's what Shove I'm getting at. Like if, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just saying, like, when was the last time you were invited to go to a Buddhist temple? Like, right. I, I've never considered going to a Buddhist temple if for no other reason than I've never been invited. And hmm. most people, and if I was invited, would I consider going? And so we have to put that, that same kind of thinking on where most people just are not going to be interested in coming to a church even if they were invited. Yeah. And let's just be honest, most people aren't inviting people anyway. Or you come out of a politeness or a curiosity one time, but it's it's coming as a tourist as opposed to a spiritually curious person. Yes. Um, you know, I think if I were to go, I've been to mosques and temples and whatever, whether in my own country or other countries, but typically you go as sort of with a posture of curiosity or learning, but not because you're, you're interested in embracing their belief system. Um, it's more like an educational field trip or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are ways in which that can, that can be okay. I mean, you kind of see that happening with Paul in Athens, where right. people are hanging around the edges and are like, what now about resurrection? What's this thing? <laughs> like, 
Um, and so there was this curiosity, and I think that's okay, but I think the bigger issue around accessibility, even if from a curiosity standpoint, is at least here in the States, I can't speak for Toronto, um, I mean, most people that are my age or younger, they find Christians really threatening and hostile, hmm. and it, they're not positive. And I think that's a real barrier that we're going to have to come, we got to have a come to Jesus moment about. Well, it's, uh, is it Tim Keller? I mean, I mean, he's not the only one who talks about this, but this idea of like being the first culture in history that has tried out Christianity and now rejected it, we're on the other side of that. So the, po- the post-Christian culture, not like not a pre-Christian yeah. where they're being introduced to it, but post-Christian where we tried that and we now say no to it. Whatever we saw of it, we tasted and saw that this was not good. Uh, we do not want this in our life. Um, and that's where, when I'm thinking about the futurist stuff, when I'm thinking about innovation, I mean, I think that's the big question that I sit with is how do we introduce people to a faith that they have already decided that they have rejected. Um, but I think they have not actually been introduced to what it really is. (laughs) Exactly. And this is like what you're, what you're hitting on is something that is deeply personal for me. So I grew up in the church um, I went to Wheaton College, and I became an atheist at Wheaton. Wow. And so I was away from the Lord for a number of years before coming back to faith. Now, and when can I you say a little, back, why, did you, why, were you, why did you become an atheist? It, was there I mean, was it was something a, you learned about there? Or? I mean, it was, I had developed some really bad sin patterns, um, struggling with depression. Uh, I, had, I, I mean, like, some of it was like, I was just really bad at relationships. And so I was just burning my life to the ground, spending Mm. money. Like I I just had all of these, um, like appetite issues that were just consuming me. I mean, whether we were talking about, uh, drinking or drugs or porn or, uh, women, I mean, like if there was something to consume, I was doing my best to consume it and burning my life down to the ground at the same time, struggling with depression. Wow. Needless to say, I really needed to be rescued. Hmm. Um, But my understanding of what Christianity was didn't answer my questions. Like what I grew up with wasn't good news for me. Hmm. And it wasn't until I really came to understand the invitation to being a disciple of Jesus in the here and now. Um, like a book like The Divine Conspiracy was a really big book for me. Dallas mm, Willard. Um, or it's like, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, this is, I've, I literally have never heard this before. Wow. Like I've grown up in the church. I have not heard, like, this is good news. This is the good news I've been waiting for. And I looked at my friends and they were either not Christians for the most part, or they had grown up in the church and left. And I'm like, they don't know what I know now. How do we give them access to this good news? Hmm. And I feel like the last 20 years, that's what my life has been about, is how, hmm. do we, how do we keep innovating on like that access point where everyone can understand the fundamentally good news of the gospel? Yeah, well, uh, on this podcast, I say over and over, most episodes at some point, this is the, this is the passion for me is, uh, you know, I think that the church doesn't just have good news. We have the best news in the world. And so we should be the best communicators in the world. Uh, But often, of course, we're not the best communicators in the world. We fail over and over. And not just like, oh, we're fragile, sinful people. It's like we don't have a skill set or a discipleship that has led us to be able to communicate this 
appropriately or effectively or in a, in a way that is even true. Um, we're, so we make good news sound like bad news. Uh, and yeah, like when, when you think about the kind of Christianity that a lot of people are exposed to culturally, yeah, I wouldn't want anything to do with that either. Um, but that's not the thing that I am going after. <laughs> so yeah. how do I translate that to you? <laughs> My friend yeah, who I, I love. It's a, what, what you're, the question that you're bringing up is, is one that involves tension. Um, because there's this one aspect that's like, the, d- does it work? Like, that's a, we don't control that. Like, we don't save people, how people respond to the gospel. We actually don't control that. Hmm. The Holy Spirit calls people to, to, to God. Like, that's, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. We have no control over that at the same time. So that one, one piece is faithfulness, but the other piece is, could I do a better job at what we just did? Right. And I think we have to hold both of those in tension. Like I don't, how, how quote well I did at that, whether that like whatever form of communication I have or a process that I'm running or whatever it is, there are pieces of it I control. It's largely guided by the Holy spirit, but I think we have to both of those conversations at the same time Hmm. and not go from ditch to ditch. And I think that's what so often happens is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, and, and as you say about your own experience, like I find like you fundamentally didn't know the gospel that you would say, you know, today. And so you threw the whole thing, you threw Jesus away with this trap, the trappings of church culture that you, that you came from. And I think that's true of many people. When I think of how many of my peers, and even a journey in my own my own life, I suppose too, uh, but how many of my peers who left church, the thing they left, I would want to leave that too. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, I, I mean, like, I look at some of my friends' stories, and I'm like, yeah, can't blame you. Yeah, been there, done that. I mean, I get it. I really do. Yeah. Well, and I think too, that's, you know, I, when I think of the, the ways that Jesus interacts in the gospels with people who are on the other side of that, like it's, I feel like he kind of is, it has that posture towards some people who are the outsiders, the non-religious, the irreligious, the rejected from religion for whatever reason. I feel like the compassion he has for those people when he interacts with like, yeah, like uh, a Samaritan woman or someone caught in a sin behavior or someone who's been, you know, not permitted to participate in religious activity for some reason or another lepers, you know, like, yeah, I, I don't blame you for having questions and wondering if God is good because this is the situation that you come out of. So how do we do this differently? Like what, (laughs) this is a huge question, which is why I wanted to talk to you. I mean, we're, we're, I'm, I'm, we're kind of circling, you know, circling the airport here, but, but one of the, the reason I have you here is because of a book called ready or not kingdom innovation for a brave new world, a book that's just come out that you have authored. Um, but this comes out of an experience that you've had this year in 2020. Um, tell it, can you tell us, can we go back to March? Um, Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like everyone else, uh, the, the person I, we we lead a, a team called Catapult, uh, Todd Milby and I, and like everyone else, we had we had plans for this year. And <laughs> there were things that we wanted to accomplish, and we yeah. had things on whiteboards and all the stuff, right? And then hmm. COVID hits, and I, uh, I I am not someone who 
who wakes up in the middle of the night. I am a deep sleeper. I need a good seven hours or I get real grumpy real fast. And I, I woke up in the middle of the night very early on. I think it was like March the March the 13th because it was Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the only reason that I remember this. And I felt like the Lord was was asking me to get up to pray. So like I went downstairs and spent a couple of hours just praying. Um, and then it happened two more nights. And again, this has never happened. Like that, that experience has never happened to me. And that's not to like self-aggrandize. It's simply like, it's rare for me to have had that experience. And by rare, I mean, it's not happened. And at the end of the third one, I, I just sensed this idea coming to my mind that felt very connected in a spiritual sense to like the prayer sessions that i had had. And sort of the insight coming out of that was all of these people that we are in relationship with who are leaders are about to be um, inundated with a sea of content and about how, like what they should do with COVID and that their inboxes are going to quadruple in size, if not go a hundred times in size about do this, do this, do this, do this. But actually while content is important, it's limited in what it can do. And so we got a, I just sent out a text to a group of people, um, Daniel Yang being one of them was like, Hey, I've got an idea that I want to run by you guys. And what, what we ultimately decided was we were going to start some coaching groups that were, that were going to help pastors navigate just this crazy, we, we're so used to this, we're sick of hearing this word unprecedented, but this has never <laughs> happened to anyone leading before. Um, yeah. And no one knows what to do. And it doesn't matter how good of a leader you are, you're going to be shaken. What if we could, what if we could navigate this time together? Right. Well, and again, and how do you, if, how do you coach someone in something you haven't, uh, what does that, what does that look like? I mean, ge- just genuinely, like that's the skeptic in me. Like when I hear everybody's got an, a solution for what to do about, yeah. you know, the pandemic, not everybody, there are people, these talking heads who have had solutions about what to do. Uh, but none of us have been here before. So how, what did that look like? How do you come alongside and coach people when you're navigating it at the same time? We put together a very simple framework that we felt would, would help, would help leaders think through the natural, like growth pattern and difficulty that they were going to face as leaders as well as in their churches. Um, and so we, we talked about the four stages where the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to help you stabilize. Hmm. We're going to help you renormalize. Then we're going to help you mobilize. And then finally, and this is where we're, we're still in this fourth phase, we want to help you think about futurize. Hmm. And so we, we came up with a very simple framework and assigned uh, weeks in a way that, that a template would work in a week that would just bring a sense of calm and help people process in smaller groups and do live troubleshooting about what they were experiencing. So, th- I mean, like we would be we would be doing these coaching groups, and in the same small group of people would be someone who was in rural Pennsylvania, who was tr- uh, in a church of like eighty, right? Okay, and they did not have they had rural internet. They were like on dial up, and they couldn't just throw stuff up on Zoom. <laughs> and so they were you know, like, "How do we do?" how do we do services on conference calls? Do we use one? Do we use like freeconferencecall.com? Like, so we're live troubleshooting that at the same time with like a mega church that has a $50 million budget. Mm. Um, 
and we didn't always have them in the same room, but it was like, we actually were, we had much more in common than you actually realized in walking through those four phases. And I think it was creating space for people to say out loud things that they were struggling with and to, to crowdsource best practices. And this is, this is the answer to your question. We weren't coming saying we have the answer. We were coming and saying, we're, cr- we're just trying to create a space where we can go on this collective journey together and we will pull best practices. Hmm. Um, and we will learn from each other because I too am helping to lead a local church in the city center where I live. Um, and we, we're, we're struggling with the exact same things. None of us have ever led through a pandemic before. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's gotta be this sense of we're all in this together. Let's, let's go on this journey together. And ultimately it, it, it caught like a lot of people ended up coming into one of these coaching groups and it was, I mean, it was just a really, really astonishing time for the church and for at least me being on the, like the, the front edges of the, some of those coaching groups. Yeah. And when you say astonishing, like, do you have, um, I mean, this book that came out of this type of innovation that you were trying to do in the group is my understanding that, um, the group was, was the pilot, the case study, the experiment of what is possible. Um, well, I think, so the, the book was 95% done when COVID hit. And what we did is we fast-tracked it but what the, what the groups represented was it is possible to take the principles that we're talking about with innovation and here's, what could, here's like an example. Here's one example of what it could look like if you applied it. And so how do you innovate something and then scale it quickly? Right. And so that's, that's ultimately what it did is that it went from, you know, just 50 churches to more than 10,000 churches in five weeks. And so it's like, how do we take a spark of an innovation, pilot it, test it, get it going, multiply it, scale it? And I think that the, the original question that you were talking about with why this book and why now is I, I just believe that innovation is a skill set hmm. like any other. Preaching is a skill set. Team management is a skill set. You can be good at it. You can suck at it. And this is something that we can actually learn how to do. And it is a muscle worth growing. Hmm. So that's interesting because that's innovation or uh, being, I mean, I would use maybe a word more like creative, but I think innovation mm-hmm. and creativity are, are complementary words or complementary oh, skills. Um, so you would say that it's a skill to be learned. It's not like this is an innovator and this person is just going to follow whatever that guy does. It's, I mean, it's one of the great myths that, in, that exists around innovation is that some people are the innovators hmm. and the rest of you poor schmucks are not. <laughs> um, that, that's just, that's, it's just not true. And like when you actually look at some of the greatest innovations that have happened, social innovations, they have not come from pioneers. Hmm. They have come because there was a desperate need. So can you give so an Bill example? Wilson, yeah. Bill Wilson is one of the greatest innovators in the history of social movements. Very few people know his name or who he is. And he, he did not mean to start something that was going to reach 130 million people. But what he needed to do was to stop drinking. Hmm. He couldn't stay sober. He was, a, he was completely binging on alcohol for 14 straight years. And it wasn't until he found a friend named Bob Smith 
and the two of them ultimately created Alcoholics Anonymous that led to the innovation that we now know as Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. and lots of people coming to faith in Jesus because of it. Wow. But it didn't start because he had a vision for 130 million people or like, man, I want to be an innovator. It was, I've got to stop drinking. Yeah. Sometimes the greatest innovations wow. are like, we got to solve this problem. Like it's personal. This is just a person. This is a personal, personal angst or pain point I need a solution for. And I think th- this is this is so important. We have to use the laboratory of our life when it comes to kingdom innovation. We sometimes, when we think about creativity or we're thinking about communication or thinking about innovation, we go straight organizational, and we think about we're immediately going to scale. But f- it's got to start in your own life first. Start at your dinner table. Start with your kids or your friends or the the people who are closest to you and just throw some mud up against the wall and see if it sticks before Mm. you're like, I have an idea and I am sure it will work. Like it probably won't actually, or at least it's not (laughs) going to work like you think it's going to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, usually people, that's maybe what I came back to what I was saying about like, how can you coach people in something that you're experiencing for the first time too? Maybe it's, it's coming just even simply with some humility behind the idea of, of, uh, I'm not sure this will work, but we're going to try a new thing and risk, uh, looking silly or risk failing yeah. or risk. I don't know. Yeah. We tried it for a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years. Yeah we're going to we're going to cut cut ties with it and move on to something else. And I and I exactly and and I think that that's that one thing is what you say like you can cut ties and be like well that was kind of embarrassing. But the worst thing and what most leaders do is they don't. They hmm. just keep running it because they feel like it's called the the uh the, the um sunken cost fallacy. It's like well I'm pot committed now. I have to keep putting money into this thing, resources into this thing, because I don't want to admit that it's not working. Right. Because whatever, we are allergic to failure. We're allergic to looking like we made a misstep or a miscue. You know, that was like when I had a Mini Cooper that was getting old. And those little cars are so fun, but cost a lot to repair. And it, it's a classic thing of like, how much more money are you going to put into something to keep it going versus just like, get rid of that thing and go try it's, something new. I lit, So I had a Mini Cooper. Did you? And in, <laughs> I did. I did. And in 2015, it was about to have, I mean, maybe 16, a load of repairs. I mean, more repairs than the car was worth. And I really yeah. like this car. And eventually, like, my, my wife talked me off the ledge and was like, you, we, we got to get rid of this car. Like, yeah. <laughs> we, we cannot put more repairs into the car than it's worth. <laughs> well, as a fellow Mini lover, uh, maybe, you, yeah. I mean, that's, I use the Mini not just because it's a regular car, but there's actually, like, a, like a club. There's a there tribe a that you're part yeah. of. There's a feeling associated. It's This isn't just driving I don't know, a Toyota Corolla because it's functional. There's, there's something about the mini that is a feeling that you're, or a life you're trying to have. About myself. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, getting rid of it, um, 
is part of like, it's maybe even some weird identity connection thing where you don't want to get rid of it. And I mean, I think that's a perfect analogy really for church problems is that like, there comes a point where like, we've tried this, it is a part of our identity, it's part of our brand yeah. or whatever, and we're part of the tribe that all has that thing, but we're going to be the first to say like, we can't put any more into this, we have to leave the club. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was I was talking to Andy Crouch about this, um, and I mean, he wrote, I mean, it's is it 10 years old now, Culture Making? Uh, just a really great book on yeah. how to make culture and uh, having creativity and culture. And he was saying, I thought he had this really fascinating insight where he said, one of the reasons that so many churches don't change is because there's so much unprocessed grief hmm. that is latent in the members of the church. And what they do with unprocessed grief is they take that emotional and spiritual angst and they attach it to things. Hmm. So they'll attach it to the sanctuary that was like it was before that person died or this program that we used to ran, we used to run that my son was in um, before he ran away or this thing before I got a divorce. Yeah. And because the grief isn't ever fully like healed from, and we, we aren't great at pastoring and shepherding that they, people attach it to things um, that are tactile and that's actually one of the fundamental reasons that we can't change things. Sometimes leaders will be like, well, they won't let me change things. And I, one, of the, one of the most paradoxical things with, with change and adaptation is we actually have to be really good at shepherding. Hmm. And sometimes we think we only have to be good at pioneering, but we actually have to be equally as good at shepherding or people aren't going to go with us. We'll just be a man or woman on a walk. We're not going <laughs> right. to be leaders. No one's following. Right. Well, okay. When you're talking about this, the the thing that comes to mind from your content, and again, one of the, when I discovered you, your book, your even just your website, I was like, I want to talk to this guy, is there's a video on your website about Sunday school. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that to me is exactly the illustration of what we're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of where Sunday school started and obviously, I think even if we're not Christians, we all kind of have a sense of where it's evolved to yep. today. <laughs> yeah, I think most people know what it is today, and they probably assume that it's been like that for 150 years. But really, there have been two iterations of Sunday school, and they are very different from each other. Hmm. The way that Sunday school started was you had a you had a, a man named Robert Rakes who started this... this um, this class that would go from 8 a.m. to 5.30 on Sundays for, for kids in the 1770s huh. who were working 80, 90, 100 hours a week at age seven. Yeah. And the only day that they had off was Sunday. These are like factory so, kids, industrial revolution. Factory, uh, think industrial revolution. Think London. Think about the rural towns that turn into factory towns outside yeah. in England. And they are... And... and, and then as of now, like education can, can be, not always is, but can be a thing to get someone out of poverty. And so they were like, we're going to teach kids how to read. We're going to teach them how to write. We're going to teach them the basics of mathematics. And we're going to have, well, there'll be lunch, there'll be breakfast, there'll be dinner. I mean, like it was a full day dedicated to helping kids get out of poverty while at the same time, I think he had this ingenious thing where the way that he taught them to read was by using the Bible. Right. And so he was able to marry two things together. 
justice and evangelism, which we mm-hmm. think are sometimes like on polar, like polar opposites. But actually, he was able to bring those things together. And wow. 50 years later, 2 million kids are in Sunday school. Like quite literally and Sunday school. They're at school on Sundays. Sunday school. In a time and where, the, where the only the elite week. would have education. Exactly. And so ultimately culture changed yeah. though. Yeah. It, it changed because they, they passed all these laws, which was good. It was like, hey, uh, we're going to – you can't work that much. You can't, if you're seven, maybe this isn't good for you. Right. We're going to start public schools. That was a good thing. But poverty was still a problem. And spiritual poverty was still a problem. And rather than Sunday school going back to the original why, why did we start this? What was the mission? What was the vision? It pivoted in the opposite direction. And it became education for already believers, both for kids and for adults. And that's the second iteration. And it lost the revolutionary roots that it had. And I think the church is making those decisions like that every single day. Wow. And we, I think we got to make some different decisions. Yeah. Yeah. What started as controversial, revolutionary, I mean, even in, you know, what you're talking about on your website, the idea that Sunday was a day, was the one day they had to be with their family or be at home and that, or like the Sabbath day was not a day to work. And this guy was doing, doing something on the Sabbath. It was considered an incredibly scandalous ministry at the time. Hmm. Because it was like, hey, you were taking education out of the hands of parents. You were breaking the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath. And you, you, it became incredibly politicized. I know this is crazy. No one would ever politicize anything. But, <laughs> you know, political pundits in the 1780s weaponized Sunday school. Huh. And were wow. like, this is bad. Wow. Or other people being like, this is good. And they came at each other in the 1780s. Like, it's this, like history just repeats itself. Yeah. So, I mean, what do we need today? I mean, what do you, are you, I guess I could go at this from two sides. Either one, do you have examples of some innovation that you're really excited about right now? Or on the other side, maybe you don't see the innovation, but you see some things that might be opportunities for someone to figure something out. Um, Do you have, do you have some ideas for us? Yeah, I have, I mean, I think, so in the, I mentioned earlier that project that my wife and I worked on where we, we were coming up with like, uh, we called it 10 church predictions for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I actually think there's a really, there's a really important moment coming in the future that is going to marry discipleship and evangelism together again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's going to be around, it's going to be similar to AA and that there is a, there is an addiction problem. And churches and Christian leaders need to step into it and provide hope, health, and healing. And it's around technology addiction. Hmm. So 79% of at least Americans, I know out in Toronto, it's probably not that much different, would self-diagnose as addicted to technology. Yeah. The average average person will scroll on their phone 5.4 hours a day. Say it again. What's the number? 5.4? The average... The average person will scroll on their screen 5.4 hours a day. Right. And I don't know when that data that came is, out, but every year the number goes higher. It goes higher. It, it, we're, again, we've had a smartphone for 12 years. It's only existed for 12 years. We are on the infantile side of what this thing is going to become. Mm. And people are, 
are becoming more dislocated from themselves, from God, from community. They're becoming more lonely, more isolated, more depressed, more anxious. Uh, Gen Z, uh, Gen, millennials, the average millennial, a 30, excuse me, not the average, 30, 35% of them have a diagnosed anxiety disorder. Gen Z is going to be worse. Hmm. And there is an opportunity for the someone to stand up and be like, hey, you know how Bill Wilson started AA to help you break te- his alcohol addiction? We need to think about that in the same way that Alpha was thinking about that with the biggest questions that people were asking. Yeah, now alpha millions, is one of the most millions of people around the world have done Alpha. Yeah. yeah. 30 million people have been to Alpha because this thing that already existed in 1979 as a, as a class to help believers when, um, when Nikki Gumbel looked at it as someone who didn't grow up in the church, he didn't see a doctrine class. He saw an evangelism opportunity. Hmm. And this is a giant opportunity for us, I think with, around technology addiction. And do you see anyone doing anything like the, uh, I think of like a John Mark Comer as sort of a pastor no. of this kind of voice in the world right now, who's sort of trending, uh, you know, with the ruthless, ruthless elimination of hurry, like trying ruthless to get away from technology. Um, you know, even when I wrote my, my master's thesis around digital discipleship and evangelism, uh, would have been four or five years ago. Uh, what I would say today is different than what I would have said then because yeah. the problem has become so much greater and my caution yeah. to work for others and for myself would be much higher. My pastoral caution around engagement with, with tech. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are you seeing anyone do it or maybe you're, or you're saying this is an opportunity or do you have any pointers? Like if people are like excited about this idea, do you have anything you can point, point us towards? I, I think we're on the front edges of this. Again, just what you said, like what you would say now versus, versus even five years ago yeah. is different. If for no other reason than it takes 10 years for substantive research of how technology shapes us to come back. Hmm. So we were only getting the first good research on this in 2018 because that smartphones were came out in 2008. Right. And so I, I think we're on the front edges of people thinking through this problem. I like what John Mark Comer is saying in terms of ethos. I don't like, this isn't a criticism. I don't think this is his space. I don't think it's as as practical as is necessary. Like when you think about AA, you're thinking like, hey, 12 steps, sponsors, group, like there are some real practical handles to it. Yes. Um, There's a book coming out next month that, um, that, uh, I've got Andy Crouch and his wife. Uh, Is it Julie? Julie Crouch? I'm, I really should know her name. I've met her. The Crouches. <laughs> the Crouches, thank yeah. you. Called The TechWise Family, which huh. is a follow-up from uh, the TechWise book that he wrote a couple of years ago. And I've seen some of it, and I think it's going to be very, very helpful. Hmm. But I think similar to uh, some of the things I talk about in the book, content is, is limited. It can only do so much because you need to do this with people. Right. Um, that, that's the genius of Alpha. That's the genius of AA. We need if we are stuck or addicted, a piece of breakthrough involves other people mm-hmm. in the journey that we're on with them. Well, I love I, I love this. I'm I'm getting fired up over here, and like <laughs> my brain is literally like spinning around how I want to be part of solving some of these problems. I know it in my I mean because I do know it in myself. 
like I, I got a screen on my wrist that buzzes <laughs> all the time with all kinds of crap and also, you know, lets me know when I haven't moved enough today, which I suppose is good because of the digital stuff yeah. I'm doing. But okay, yeah. there's there's an idea that I'm that I'm meandering to here. You, you talk about innovation bias and this quote I want to read the, from your book. The question is where our bias is. So we all have bias, but where is sure. our bias? Does our bias lead us towards innovations that are heavyweight, high maintenance, led by elite leaders and hard to multiply? I.e., are we innovating in a way like AA that can be brought to the masses or is it something that's kind of inaccessible to most people, um, what are we building or what is our bias towards in the group we're building for? I, I think what, in writing that, the, the, the purpose of stating it is to say, there, it's not bad, like heavyweight, high maintenance takes skill, high level of leadership expertise in order to do it. That's not bad. Mm -hmm. There are lots of examples. Right. Like let, let's stick with the alcoholism one, for example. There are rehab centers and there's AA. Both are necessary. We need both of those. Again, this can be about accessibility. Yes. And we, we want everyone to have access to, if they are addicted to alcohol, we want them to have access to something that will help them break it. But if all that you have is a rehab center and the cost of entry is $30,000 a month, we have an access problem. Right. And so... It's, it's actually having both of those. And I think and we so, live yeah, in a And so, yeah, that will help some people, but, but how do yes. we help other people? <laughs> other people. And I think we live in a space right now where our bias is towards elite leadership, heavyweight things, expensive things, that has a real ceiling on how many people can be reached. Hmm. I, really th I really think that. And if our, if our calling is to see every single person have multiple times, multiple opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus, uh, to be a disciple of Jesus, we're going to need what I call a, um, a mixed economy. Hmm. We're going to need multiple things happening at the same time. And I think we're used to wanting there to be a silver bullet that will solve everything. Right. If we all look like North Point, if we all look like Life Church, if we all, if we all, if we all did Tampa Underground or whatever it would be, these are great things that happen. But what is God calling you to? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, the what same does it way, look like for God to incarnate yourself, word made, like where you are at, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's back to what we started our conversation with, this idea that all these churches that are doing things in a certain way, they're still, whatever the number is, 40, 60, 80% of people who won't ever go to any of those kinds of things because it doesn't matter if it's the charismatic church or the Hillsong church or the Presbyterian church or the, you know, whatever, all these different kinds of expressions of worship, none of them are going to connect with that person. And so, yes, we need like an ecosystem that has lots of innovative, diverse approaches uh, to reach all kind, uh, all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Every person. Yeah. Every single person. I. Like um, that's yeah. that's what the Great Commission is. It's the completion of every single people group hmm. has had access to the gospel. Hmm. And um, when you think of sort of the global church, uh, the non, I guess the non-American or the non. North, I mean, I'm North American. <laughs> uh, yeah. What do you see happening? Uh, what's something that you're excited about um, when we're reaching other kinds of people? 
I tell you, I am, I am, a, I am a chief evangelist for this right now. We are working. Um, so I, I help lead an organization called Catapult, and we work with like churches, nonprofits, denominations, networks, blah blah blah. One of the organizations we're working with, um, I would highly encourage if you're listening to this, check this, check out this website. Um, they're called New Generations, mm. NewGenerations.org, and they're they are. Um, they are doing this thing called DMM, which some people might know about, disciple-making movements. It's a very specific brand of, of how to do this. And they are targeting unreached people groups hmm. um, that have had no access to the gospel for at least 200 years or more. And some people never, ever, ever, their culture, tribe, whatever, has never heard the gospel before. And one of the things that is ridiculous is they are the gold standard for tracking um, they, they're doing qualitative, quantitative, and sustainability tracking for these generational hmm. movements. Wow. It is unbelievable what is what God is doing. In 15 years, there are almost 2 million people who have come to faith in Jesus with so little overhead in terms of money. In all in places, I, I can't name all the places that they're in for safety of like different, sure. different people who are in those places. But this is, we're not talking about um, maybe like less in the West. We're talking about sort of the two-thirds world. Uh, we're, I mean, we're talking s- some so – we're talking developing. Mm, okay. But we're also talking – we can be talking about Eastern Europe as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, like one nut that they're trying to crack right now is Western urban cities outside the United States. Yeah. And that is a very difficult nut to crack. There's one they're in, they're in Johannesburg right now and they're just starting to see some stuff happen there that I think is incredibly exciting. Wow. Um, but one of the things that I love is like they're they're learning all these principles around disciple making and how it can multiply and doesn't require money to do that. Well, I've got these friends who are trying to take those same principles and apply it and they're in Kansas City. Oh, okay. And they're thinking through what that looks like here in a Western context. They're guys, um, Rob Wegner and Brian Phipps. And I'm just so like, I'm just so excited that there are people who are trying things that look nothing like what we have, we've seen before and are actually like putting that into practice. And they have been, they're like dogged with it. They're, They're like dogs with a bone who refuse to give up on this idea that disciples can make disciples who make disciples. So like new generation the great commission. Definitely, super <laughs> you know, refusing to give up on the initial idea that we've maybe lost yeah. along the way. And, and it's not like there's a, um, is it Jeff Bezos who says like have strong opinions held loosely? I think it, it might've been him. I think that's a big thing with this where we, where we think about with innovation, these things that we're trying and we see this a lot with some of the different organizations that catapult works with where let's have really strong opinions about the practices for what it could look like, but hold those very loosely. You could be wrong. I mean, this is a, it might not work. Let's be committed to the principles and let's not hold those loosely, but the practices, mm-hmm. let's be real, you know, we could be wrong. And I, I think oftentimes the, we yeah, are, the methods, and that's okay. The methods versus the message, I guess is what other people exactly. say. Yes. Yeah. I, there's so much. Uh, there's so much in your book around how to start innovating, building. As if anyone can be an innovator, and we need innovators 
during yeah. uh, this moment in history. Um, the good news is it's not an elite group. Anyone can do it. Your book uh, outlines the steps of how to start doing that. You have all kinds of inspiration and examples from like current and historic events of how people have done innovation. Um, but you know, is there, you know, we, first of all, we want to get like, what are the, what are the things you want to point people at? You've already mentioned a few websites, but where do, where do you want people to find you? And then we'll just like anything you want to close with, what, what do you want to encourage the church with the creatives and communicators who are listening today? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, from a, where you, where can you find things? The two websites uh, to point people to, there's my, there's my personal one, um, dougpaul.org. I did .org because .com was not available. I am not an org. Uh, I know. But the uh, the other one, and probably I think the, the much more important one, is uh, wearecatapult.org. That's okay. um, the, the team that we're part of. And a lot of the work that we're doing and the innovation that we're seeing, uh, you'll, you'll find there. The, uh, the encouragement that I would really, I would really give people, or maybe the coaching, I'm not sure one or the other, maybe both, is don't look for a tactic to to be the next silver bullet that's going to solve all the problems. It just, it never works. Mm. Um, what, what I want to encourage people to and why I felt like the book was meant to be hope-filled, encouraging, and it would really fire people up towards this central idea is that innovation is a skill you can learn and it's a muscle you can grow. And if you will actually discipline yourself to grow that muscle, you'll, it will pay dividends for the next 40 years of your leadership life or however long that you, you happen to be on this earth. Um, and I, that sounds really morbid <laughs> the way that no, I just good. phrased that. But how, however long you're in leadership, however long that, that you are here, that God has placed you here, if you will grow that muscle, you can go through dozens of tactics um, but if you only go for tactics, you're going to be committing yourself to something that is going to be an irrelevant. It's just going to be irrelevant in a couple of years. Right. Grow the muscle. Don't search for the tactic. I love it. Doug, Paul, I'm so glad to have met you, uh, to think innovation and, uh, you know, the kingdom that is expanding all around us. And we have so much to learn and we have so much to do. So I hope that people uh, grab a copy of your work and ultimately get into your mind uh, to learn from you um, <laughs> because there is much to be done. And, you know, I hope, I hope people start getting, getting uh, that earworm about how to handle digital addiction uh, is a really great place to start. Let's go solve that problem, yep. everybody. Word made digital tribe. Let's go solve it. Let's go do something about it. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Love the conversation. Yeah, awesome. Doug, thank you so much for the conversation. I love this idea of creativity and innovation in Jesus' name. Next up on the podcast, we have Kate Warman. She's a relationship expert. She's an Instagram influencer, if you like that term. And we're talking about digital dating, online dating, the digital world of how it affects romantic relationships. So you don't wanna miss that episode. We've never talked about this subject on the podcast before. In five seasons, it's about time we talk about digital dating. So thanks so much to Wycliffe College who's making this podcast possible. If you're looking to grow in your own 
uh, in your own academics, in your own intellectual knowledge of scripture, in your own development as a disciple of Jesus. It's an amazing school with world-class top scholars, one of the top seminaries in the world. So uh, why not consider it? Check it out. Go to wickliffcollege.ca slash digital. They want to send you some free swag if you drop by the website. And it's a school that I went to, so uh, why not check it out? Thanks also, of course, to Compassion. Child sponsorship is an amazing opportunity for us to help kids survive this pandemic and thrive beyond it, to become like Dr. Jose, a medical doctor who was in the most vulnerable crime-ridden neighborhood as a child in the Dominican Republic. And he is a doctor today serving back in this community because of child sponsorship from when he was young. So please consider going to compassion.ca. Would love for you to join us there. Join us in the tutorials at wermadedigital.com. The Facebook group, the Digital Church Facebook group is where the party's at week to week between episodes. And hey, we'll see you back next week with Kate Warman as we talk about digital dating. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.